I pray, gracious God, that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. And God, if I say anything that isn't from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. I pray, come Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts soft this morning? It's through Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Woe to you, those who are at ease, and to those who feel secure on the mountain, the notable men of the first of the nations. That was from our reading in Amos just a moment ago, and now we've got Jesus with some harsh words for Pharisees. Oh boy. All right. Well, good morning. My, my name is Mike, and like I said earlier, I'm one of the priests here at Truro, it's commonly said that the job of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. <laughs> and so giddy up this morning because today we're going to talk about everybody's favorites, death and money. <laughs> if you brought a Bible, please do open with me to Luke chapter 16. If you didn't bring your own Bible, you can find it on page 876 in the Bibles in your pew racks, or of course, Google will bring you right to Luke chapter 16. I must say, anytime Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees, there is a temptation on the part of a preacher to try to soften those words or to spiritualize those words or to explain those words away, to try to keep them in the abstract and understood in context, Jesus' story, this parable this morning, is not an easy story. In order to understand the point that Jesus is trying to make with this parable, we need to zoom out a bit though and look at the context. Now, Jesus has been teaching a crowd that includes his disciples and sinners and tax collectors, as well as the scribes and the Pharisees for several chapters now, going all the way back to chapter 14. Now, in the beginning of chapter 15, which Mary taught the last two weeks, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and that this caused the Pharisees and the scribes to grumble. And so Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And then here in chapter 16, if you're holding a Bible, you'll see it just from the headings. Jesus begins to teach specifically to his disciples about money, instructing them in the responsibilities of stewardship before finally saying right here, chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is straightforward. He's challenging. It's the sort of statement that should force us to ask all sorts of uncomfortable questions of ourselves. Now, look with me at what happens right here in verse 14. Continuing on, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, 
heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus says this directly to the Pharisees. They, the Pharisees and the scribes are Jesus' audience for today's parable. And he is directly calling out their hard hearts and their love of money. It is so easy to be hard-hearted about money, to make excuses or to explain something away. And so, Lord, please give us soft hearts this morning. Jesus gets at it again. He makes this direct statement to the Pharisees, and then he gets at it again by way of parable in today's story. Jesus tells the Pharisees about two men. One is very rich. This man is clothed in purple and fine linen. Jesus says that he eats sumptuous food every day and every night. He has a very large house. We know he has a very large house because in verse 20, Jesus says specifically that there's a gate to this house and only the very largest of houses have gates. This man has got it made, and he has no trouble enjoying his wealth. On the other side, we've got a man named Lazarus. This is not the same man that Jesus would rise from the dead, but it's a fictional Lazarus whose situation is strikingly different than the rich man. Luke writes that he was very poor. He was covered in sores, pained, so helpless that the sores were even licked by dogs. And You have to understand this. Dogs are not man's best friend in the ancient world. They're not cuddly. They're not second or third or first children like we treat them today. Now, dogs back in that day and time were scavengers. They were like pigeons, all right? Always kind of there, trying to dart in and get the scraps. And the dogs are the ones who are licking his sores. He's probably crippled to boot, Because if you look at verse 20, it says that each and every day that he was laid at his gate. The poor man was laid there. Couldn't get there himself, but was brought presumably by others. And he's hoping for just some of the scraps that fall from the table of a rich man. The sort of scraps that the dogs ate. The contrast is sharp. It's supposed to be. But you can't buy your way out of death as much as Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk might try. Death comes to the rich and the poor alike. And just as the contrast between Lazarus and the rich man is sharp in life, so too is it sharp in death. The poor man, Jesus says, is carried by angels to Abraham's side, while the rich man ends up in torment in Hades. Now, this role reversal shouldn't have been shocking to Jesus' listeners. After all, over and over and over again, Jesus has described the upside-down nature of his kingdom. It's a kingdom where first are last and last are first, where the overlooked are seen, where the outsiders are brought in and the insiders are put out. The economics of the world are turned upside down. 
In Jesus' kingdom, the lost are found, the dead are raised, the sick are healed, and you gain your life by losing it. While uncomfortable to our generally wealthy, modern American ears, Jesus' preference really is for the poor. We see this throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so it should be of no surprise that the rich man, who, by the way, is left anonymous and unnamed, the rich man ends up in torment, while the poor man, the only character in any of Jesus' parables to be given a name, and he's given the name Lazarus, which literally means God will help, Lazarus ends up carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. While Jesus' audience here are scribes and Pharisees, this ought to be so comforting to those of us who have been beat up by life. Those of us who are sick and hurting, the poor, the down and out. If you are going through a hard time, hear this. Jesus sees you and he loves you and this is not all there is. Eternity is awfully long compared to whatever your plight might be in this life. And God has not forgotten you or overlooked you, even if people have. Even if God's people have. Now, the exchange that follows here is so fascinating. Look with me at this, starting in verse 23. The rich man is on the other side of the divide and he hollers up to Abraham. It says, the rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. The tables have turned. The one who is poor and sick and forgotten now is a place of honor, while the one who seemingly had it all now has nothing. And Jesus, he continues his story telling us that from his torment, the rich man hollers across the divide and he says, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The lack of humility from the rich man here is astounding. Even in death, even in hell, the rich man thinks Lazarus exists to do his bidding. To serve him. He thinks he can holler at Abraham, hey, can you send that guy that I was too busy for before down here to relieve some of my agony? Just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 22, Jesus would tell his disciples the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Not so with you. Rather, Jesus says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. Friends, the way of Jesus is the way of humble service, of downward mobility even. It's marked by stacking chairs and doing dishes, changing diapers so a tired tired parent can have a break. 
It's marked by giving more than receiving, by caring for the sick and giving to the poor. It is so easy for us to say that this is for someone else to do or that we just don't have time. As many of you know, I was away this summer on a sabbatical, which in and of itself is a great privilege. Can I share with you just one of the lessons that I feel like God really imprinted on my heart while I was away? It's, it's amazing, I guess it's not amazing, that it required a little bit of space for the Lord to begin to teach me this lesson. But this is one of the lessons that he has been trying to get through my hard head and hard heart for some time. And this is, this is what I think one of the things he was teaching me. There's a difference between being busy and being hurried. There's a difference between being busy and being hurried. Busy is a calendar, all right? And I've got three elementary school-aged children and a wife who works full-time in Northern Virginia. My calendar is going to be full. Heck, Jesus' calendar was full. He constantly had somewhere to go, someone to see. His days were stacked, sun up to sundown. Busy is a calendar. Hurried is a heart posture towards people. Jesus was busy, but he always made time for people. For me, being busy too often has been an excuse to not see people, especially those who might make me uncomfortable or require sacrifice or put me outside my comfort zone. If I'm too busy to be bothered, too busy to see people in need, too busy to serve. Oh, then friends, I am the Pharisee in this story and have wandered from the way of Jesus and I need to repent. An unhurried life is one that sees people who might make us uncomfortable or might need something from us or might put us outside of the com our comfort zones. The rich man was so hurried and so important. He had feasts to throw, estates to run, and he couldn't be bothered to see Lazarus. Jesus always seems to see Lazarus. Back to the story in verse 25. Abraham, he replies to the rich man, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Abraham is so gentle, child but he's firm, making clear the great reversal of Jesus's upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. And oh boy, are there lessons there for us. Two points I wanna briefly make here. First, how we live this life matters. How we live 
in this life matters. By most measures, the rich man had a very nice life, but he didn't live well. You can have a rich life and not live well. And friends, how we live matters. His life is full of nice things, but it's absent of humility or kindness or generosity or concern for really anyone who might be below his station. He had plenty of coin, but no fruit. That being said, this life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. The amount of time that we have on this life is but a tiny fraction of eternity. If life really was all there is, then living for oneself above all else would completely, totally make sense. But life isn't all that there is. Life isn't all that there is. We have eternity to come. The things that matter when it comes to eternity don't look the same as the things that seem to matter in this world. What that means is that you and I, we have a choice about how we're going to live today in this life, knowing that we have eternity to come. Jesus tells us that the rich man didn't learn these lessons until it was too late for him. Time has run out. And then, for the first and only time in the story, the rich man thinks about someone other than himself. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. said, He may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He, he still can't bring himself to call Lazarus by name, the rich man. And he still thinks that Lazarus exists to serve him, not the other way around. He still doesn't get it. And, and then... This zinger. And if you think about the context, man, is this a zinger. Verse 29. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's remember the context here. The Pharisees and scribes have been hard-hearted towards Jesus. They've been hard-hearted towards his teaching about money. They've ridiculed his teaching on money. We saw that just a few verses ago in our introduction. Now, if you have your own Bible, if you brought it with you this morning, you need to circle the word repent in verse 30 because that word is the key, repent. It's the invitation for these hard-hearted Pharisees and it's the invitation for us. The, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to, the, to his brothers that they might learn from his mistakes and re repent, pre presumably to repent of their love of money and their pride and their arrogance and their failure to care for the poor. And Abraham says no. They have Moses and the prophets to tell them how to live. Now, when, when Abraham says no, they have Moses, what he means there is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And when he says they've got the prophets, he means the, the Old Testament prophetic literature. He says, you've got the Bible, They've, they've got it. Shouldn't they repent? If that's not enough, this is the zinger. Jesus' audience here is the scribes and the Pharisees who took great pride in knowing and teaching and obeying Moses and the prophets. They knew the scripture, but they failed to apply them. 
They lived in their head without ever making the way to the heart or to the hands. They heard only what was convenient while missing the point. Faithful stewardship of money, caring for the poor, treating others with humility and kindness, conveniently ignored. These same things are far too frequently ignored by those of us who consider ourselves Christians today. Far too frequently ignored by me. In Jesus' story, the rich man replies, the scriptures won't be enough. They need a messenger from the dead. Do you hear the barb for the Pharisees in, this, in these words? And in the story, Abraham replies that even someone rising from the dead will not be enough to convince some of their need to repent. Maybe you heard that in the first reading like Luke's audience would have. They would have made the connection right away because Jesus himself had been raised from the dead and that wasn't enough for many to inspire repentance. By this point, Jesus has been working with variations on the same theme for four chapters. All the way back in chapter 13, Jesus said twice no less that his audience needed to repent or perish and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here he is again, exhorting the hard-hearted to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to live life differently according to the kingdom of God, to refuse to worship money and instead to live generously, knowing and believing that it all belongs to God anyway. To care for the poor, even when it's inconvenient. To serve selflessly, giving oneself away for the sake of others. Jesus himself said that it's hard to do all that and be rich. But, and here's the good news. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to change directions. It's not too late to begin to give generously of your time and your talent, yes, but also of your money. It's not too late to serve others, putting them ahead of yourself. It's not too late to care for the poor and the sick. It's not too late to fight oppression. It's not too late to make wrongs right. It's not too late to give yourself away. There's an invitation in these words that have been so hard for me this week to stop, to take a look at your bank account, take a look at your stuff, and to ask, are you leveraging it for others? How are you or aren't you leveraging it for others? Because you can't take it with you. You can't take your bank account with you. You can't take your nice house, your nice car with you. And there's an invitation to us to change directions. It's what Jesus is looking for here from the Pharisees. He's getting at a straightforward instruction from a different angle in hopes that their hearts might soften, that they might change direction. Venture to guess one of two things was happening for the Pharisees. Either they're beginning in that moment to feel indignant and defensive or they're feeling heavy-hearted. Ah, he's right. My guess is, if you're anything like me reading this text this week, you're feeling one of those two things too. 
indignant, defensive. Or maybe, oh, Jesus, I need to repent. And here's the thing. Jesus is so patient with the Pharisees. He gives them chance after chance after chance. He welcomes them time and time again, just as he does the sinners and tax collectors. And friends, that's the invitation for us today. To take a hard look at how we're living. Is how we're living, the posture and softness of our hearts, the willingness of our hands, does that line up with the way of Jesus or not? To take account. There's also an invitation to come to Jesus again. The good shepherd who invites us over and over and over again, knowing that we're going to get it wrong, yet inviting us again to trust him, to live his way. I think it was Henry Nouwen who wrote that the Christian life is a constant call to repentance. I like that. I know I need to repent over and over again. It's why in just a moment, when we pray, we're going to confess. And then we're going to hear the good news again that we're forgiven. And we're going to be invited to offer ourselves and our stuff back to God. And then as we conclude our service, we're going to be sent back out into the world to walk in the way of Jesus. Friends, Jesus invites us to come to him, weary and broken and arrogant as we are, to allow him to transform us, that we might love others well, that we might value what he values, that we might give ourselves away for the sake of others in this life, even and perhaps especially when it's hard or when it hurts, knowing and believing that he does know best, that his ways are the best ways, and knowing and believing that what lies ahead is far greater than anything this world might promise us. Will you stand and pray with me? Gracious God, I am so grateful for how gentle you are with me and for how gentle you are with us. And I do pray, God, that just as I've had to wrestle with this text this week, that your words in the scripture may draw us to repent and humbly and meekly come to you again, offering you our whole lives and selves. I pray that your Holy Spirit even now would be working in our hearts, transforming us that we might see the world the way that you do. We might love the way that you love, that we might be generous the way that you are generous. Would you do that in us? And would you make us to be that sort of people? It's through Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.